All right. So if you've been doing marketing for a while, actually, it doesn't even matter if you've been doing it for a while, for a week or a decade, you know that Google Analytics just becomes like the bane of any marketing team's existence. It's a necessary evil. Something always breaks or it's not right, or you got to find a developer to help you set it up. And I looked it up because I wanted to mention it for this, but Google Analytics launched in November 2005, 16 years ago, and yet it's still the thing that most marketing teams uh, obsess over and get stuck with so much. But there's a better way, and that way is called Aribi. It's an awesome new company, Aribi.io. They got customers like Sony, Pizza Hut, Audi, Panasonic, and Sky. So what they do is really cool. They automatically capture every activity on your website. So imagine someone visits your blog. Oh, nope, didn't have to set up a tag for that. It just automatically captures. Someone visited your pricing page. Somebody did something on your website. You didn't have to go and set that up in advance, which is always the thing that drives me nuts. Ah, oh, we didn't have a goal set up for that. They'll automatically capture everything that's happening on your website and you can do it all without a developer. That is the selling point for me to not have to always beg my friends on the product team to do drug deals and get this stuff over the line. Once you connect your site, you can just start capturing everything your website visitors do. And you can even ask questions like, hey, do people, are people who read our blog, are they more likely to buy than other people? Or people who visit my pricing page, are they more likely to convert than somebody else. It's awesome and you should totally check it out. And they're hooking you up with a great little discount, 20% off any plan. But most importantly, like to me, marketing is about simplifying the decision-making process. And if you can have someone that works 24-7 like an analyst on your team for you, which is what Aribi does, it's going to give you a huge benefit. So you can go and check it out, aribi.io slash DGMG, and you can start a free trial. And if you use the coupon code DGMG, you'll get 20% off any plan. I'm launching a new site, dgmg.co, in a couple of weeks, and I'll be using Aribi to track everything that I do. And I think you should go and check it out. So aribi.io slash DGMG, go and check it out, and hopefully you can say goodbye to Google Analytics. This episode is also brought to you by my friends at Lemon Pie. They're the ones who produce this show for me. They're awesome at what they do and I can't recommend their work enough. They make it super easy for me and I know that they can help you too if you want to launch a podcast strategy for your brand. Check them out at www.lemonpie.fm and tell them I sent you. That's www.lemonpie.fm. Tell them that I sent you. All right, let's get into this episode. Hey, I'm Dave Gerhardt, and you're listening to the DGMG Podcast. This is the place where I share marketing lessons and learnings every week. My guest on this episode is Chris Walker. He's CEO of Refine Labs. Okay, Chris, so I want to know, first of all, you have a... I want to know your, your, your story because you've done a great job on LinkedIn, but like, explain to me your background. You were a guy doing demand gen, and you were like... I'm going to go start an agency because I think now it sounds like business is booming and you really have this nice niche. But like, how did you do this? <laughs> yeah. So let's go back a while, right? I think it's all important. So studied yeah. electrical computer engineering in college, thought I was going to write software for medical devices, right? Hold on. Oh, I meant to ask you this a long time ago, but I'm born and raised in Worcester, grew up in Worcester. So I saw your WPI. Yeah, yeah. I, I was like, okay, that's like 10% credibility. <laughs> we'll get along on that piece alone. And so... The things that engineering background taught me is how to solve problems and how to challenge assumptions in a way that's systematic and, you know, have a method to do that. And so then I got out of college, quickly realized that I wasn't good at writing software and I didn't like it. What I was doing was going out and talking to customers to help engineering figure out what they should actually write in code. And that was within six months. I was 22 years old. And so the company recognized that and, and kind of leaned into it and put me in a product management role. And so got into marketing like when I was 23, managing like an $8 million business line, mainly on the upstream side, talking to customers, running betas, developing messaging, figuring out pricing, building business cases, deciding what features to build, blah, 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 blah. At the same time that I was doing that over the next four years, I built two e-commerce companies out of my bedroom. I was bringing products in from Turkey or from Asia, rebranding them and then selling them on Shopify and Amazon in the early 2010s. And that's where I started to learn my the skills of advertising. And I did it with my own money. And you know this, Dave, like when you're spending $1,000 of your own money on ads, you really care how much it costs you to acquire a customer and whether or not it's profitable. And so 
that's how I started to get into the advertising segment, Amazon search ads, Instagram ads to Shopify, direct response, Facebook ads like 2012. That was the cool stuff. And then moved into in the most recent like five years, moved into my first venture funded company. I left that company in California. I started at a company here called Vapotherm. I was a marketing manager. And when I got into that company, I quickly noticed it was 100% outbound sales, looked at the business data. The business data was telling me that our customer acquisition cost was very high. Our go-to-market strategy was inefficient. And we could be doing a lot more in marketing to bring customers in that have shorter sales cycles, just do a little bit more demand generation. So I went on this like quest inside of this company to build a demand gen function. And I basically operated as if it was a SaaS company. The company was a medical device capital, high capital cost product with recurring revenue model disposable. So similar business model to a SaaS business. And while I was doing that, I had a couple of key gifts. The first gift was that the company wasn't doing anything to begin with. So I didn't come in and be like, oh, you need to run on this lead gen machine or you need to do this. Or they, the company didn't know what I should do and what it should be measured. And so I just started to experiment and run things with the lens of this needs to generate pipeline and revenue because that's all the CEO cares about. And so I started to do a lot of the things that you would read about. I started to like in a HubSpot blog or like that type of stuff. And I would do them and I would measure it. And I was like, I'm not sure if this is like the really the best way to do it. And so I started to figure out other things. I started ungating content in 2016 because it made sense to me that if you ungated content and you gave it to somebody and the content was good and it talked about the clinical trial that the product was out, that our product was better than the thing that they're using right now, it would make sense that they would be more likely to purchase the product. And so just intuitively started to do that built a video podcast and different things like that early on interviewing physicians and emergency medicine physicians and things like that. And throughout that entire process, started to look at what the impact was on the business, right? And so looking at comparing customer acquisition costs from net new business from our outbound channel compared to this, looking at the sales cycle length differences, looking at the win rate differences, especially when you have a field sales organization that's driving six hours across the state to have a meeting. And then after that meeting, they're going to drive back and then they're going to go and do that two or three more times in order to actually close a sale. Right. And what on dinner? Yeah. And so I just looked at the differences and they were extraordinary. And so that company eventually IPO'd. And then I looked out in the world and I was like, what I did there is quite different than how most B2B SaaS companies are operating. And the reason that they don't do the, the things that I do is because they have existing assumptions about what marketing should do, mm-hmm. about lead targets, about that you should gate our content, that it needs to be direct response because you need direct attribution. And a lot of things that they've been trained to think, frankly, from MarTech vendors and analyst firms that are paid by MarTech vendors in order to do marketing that way, And so by removing those assumptions, I feel like I've found a marketing model that works better. And it's uniquely differentiated from an agency position because agencies are transactional by nature and need to prove that they use the lead number or the conversion number to prove that they did something as opposed to us where we're in the CRM looking at pipeline and revenue data like I would if I was an internal employee and really trying to move their business forward regardless of the number of leads. Mm -hmm. And so that's sort of like the the high level story about the things that I've been doing and would be happy to kind of go deeper on it. That's great. So you had this background as an engineer. I love the direct response stuff. You know what I mean? Like you typically sell more transactional, lower AC, not drift, but like in privy right now, right? It's like SMB transactional stuff where direct response can really work, especially in product led and things like that. In complex deals, it can be quite inefficient, especially with sales resources following up. Yeah, but I think what gets lost in that is I think there's a mindset. When you are marketing in that way, you have to learn like inputs and outputs and measuring everything and building a funnel. And so I think like, yes, you can't apply the same tactics, like the offer is not going to work. At Privy, we can say, you know, the offer can be buy now. We can send out an email to customers at the end of the month and say, like Zoom, right? Every quarter I get an email from Zoom asking me to like, you know, save 20% and upgrade to annual and it's mm-hmm. like, you know, 200 bucks, right? And they get conversions on that for sure. Of course, because it works because Mm -hmm. of the the segment and the ASP. But I think like there's a mindset that I love the funnel mindset. And I become obsessed with like Russell Brunson, ClickFunnels stuff because Mm -hmm. of the mindset of, oh, we're just, it's all the same. The goal is just different. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I can't run ads on Twitter that are going to say, book a meeting with my enterprise sales rep. But I can think (laughs) about, okay, if the end goal is to book a meeting, 
how would I do that? Okay, mm-hmm. well, maybe first I might think about what it actually takes to get a meeting. I got to totally. sit down, I got to, right? So, huh, okay, what might I do before that to like reduce the friction? Oh, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to create an assessment. I'm going to assess the problems this person might have. And then when they take it, that's the path to a demo. Okay, that's mm-hmm. interesting. You know, I think it encourages you to think about what that actual funnel is where like so often in B2B, we either measure too much, I think, or we don't measure anything. And it's like this balance in the middle mm-hmm. where you get stuck. And what I did and how I developed this is all I did was I went to sales meetings right like in the field right along. And then I would just listen to the sales conversations in real life. And then I would compare the people that were cold versus the people that were warm and understand what were the differences in what those people knew and what they believed in and what they thought. And then I just tried to close the gap using marketing instead of an individual sales conversation, right? Like address objections, present data that they need to know so that they start to be psychologically in a place where they understand more about your product. I want to tell you something that's changed for me and I want to get your reaction to it. So as senior marketing manager, Dave, or just marketing Dave, who thinks that (laughs) everything is great and marketing should be about feelings. And like, trust, I believe in brand more than anybody that I've heard about B2B. However, there's people that have way more experience, but I'm just talking about what I've done the last five to seven years. I've led marketing at Drift and I lead marketing at Privy. At the end of the day, there is one thing that my boss is a CEO. My boss at Drift was a CEO. My boss at Privy is a CEO. I don't speak for all CMOs, but I'm going to speak for my own experience with this. There is one thing that they care about in that job. Can you tell people what that is? Do you know what it is? Revenue. Growth. Revenue. Revenue. Period. Period. End of story. Yes, they want brand. Yes, they want cool swag. Yes, they want to do events. Yes, they want to have a podcast, but not at the expense of revenue. And so Mm -hmm. when you are now tasked with leading the marketing team, you are gold by revenue then it makes it really clear what you need to focus on. It's like, I think this is a great analogy. It's like when you're a kid, you're like, oh, but I hate my parents. I can't understand why they do that shit. But once you have kids, you're like, oh no, now I know exactly why my parents did that mm-hmm. thing. And I think the same is true in like running marketing, which is like, yes, your life can be so much simpler if you just think about revenue. And so I love when I listen to you talk because you always talk about start at pipe like, I'm first going to just, I'm going to go look at your pipeline and I'm going to see where things are coming from. And that's the very first part. Mm-hmm. Just like you can simplify this game so much if you throw out all the bullshit and think about revenue first. Now mm-hmm. there's a lot in there, which is like you have to balance short-term and long-term stuff. But like, I just think it your life can be so much simpler if you just work backwards from revenue. Yeah, one of the core mistakes I see often when presented with something like that is when a marketer that's not fully disciplined thinks about revenue they end up only doing specific things that they can attach to revenue directly, or they start leading into things that are more that I would consider more like sales. The easiest way to look at it is that a lot of marketers will focus on like pipeline acceleration, right? Because it's close enough that they can prove influence through the deal, as opposed to some of the things that are far away from revenue, like the thing that we're doing right now, a podcast or LinkedIn organic or different things like that. I feel like there's a fine line as long as you are a disciplined marketer and you understand how a podcast impacts revenue and you understand how people buy, then you can be very totally, flexible with that mindset. It, it all has to be laid out within the context. And so like, I think one thing that marketers are not good at is being able to think about both. And so they're like, well, Dave, mm-hmm. you, Chris, talk about revenue. So where does a podcast fit in that? And I'm like, hold on. <laughs> First of all, there's long-term benefits of doing the podcast, right? And you're not expecting to generate pipeline from it today, right? However, when you look at the macro and you're like, look, I'm going to, each week, I'm going to spend between two to four hours of my however many hours in a week on the podcast and content because it helps keep me sharp. It helps you meet other people. You build this pipeline of content. You build a brand, blah, blah, blah. You're not saying that you're spending 100% of your time doing this. It's the same way like you want to work out, stretch, do mobility so you can live long, you know, eat better. You have to be able to do both, right? And so I think it's like you got to be able to think of like, look, here's the short-term revenue things that we can do today to hit the number today. But two years from now, we're going to be kicking ourselves because we didn't focus on building a brand. Or like I'm going through something right now where I'm pissed at myself about not making a particular investment at Privy, for example. If I had made that investment a year ago, we would have been at, you know, X percent Mm -hmm. more growth at this point. And so I'm paying that tax now and we're doing it now. But it's like, I think you have to take that portfolio management approach to all of marketing. Totally. Yeah. And like, to be direct, our podcast is our number one channel that drives consultation calls to work with us. 
it's right. very clear. The reason I know is because when I go into a call, people say, I've been listening to your podcast and I was really interested in talking about this specific thing with you. People will tell you if it's good. And so the idea that that happens in day one is unrealistic, but the idea of the long-term upside of some of these channels, as well as I agree with you on my ability to communicate more clearly over doing this for two years, right? Like the story is more clear. You say it in a different way a bunch of times. You can feel whether or not it resonates with people. It's practice. Yeah. So what I get from you is a lot of like, you're good at kind of separating. I'll never forget the very first meeting I had with a VP of sales in a marketing job. We had already established marketing, trying to get going, interview a VP of sales. He's like, let's go way more experienced than me. Let's get on the whiteboard, draw the funnel and draw out the funnel. And he's like, yeah, this is great. What you have though, is you don't have, these are not leads. You have 5,000 email addresses, right? And so I think like what you're good at is like sifting out all of the noise to focus on like the very specific one or two things to do. So what would be the B2B SaaS marketing playbook that you would run today? What do you build? I want to get into like, how would you think of that if you're yeah. the CMO of a SaaS company? Yeah, first off, the theory, it's not even a theory, it's just pure data. It's true, is the idea that not all MQLs are created equal and not all sales qualified opportunities are created equal and the data shows it. And so by connecting data with customer empathy, you can start to identify what are the actual sources of revenue Mm -hmm. that are most productive. Mm -hmm. And so let's get into it. Like the things that we do for companies and we have a very specific process and we have it time sequenced in a specific way that I think it's been working the best. We've been iterating on it for two years now. All right, so um, hit me. So what is the number one best source of revenue is what? A inbound demo request with organic or direct traffic last touch attribution. Okay. To me, that's the one that's, yes, great. I think any sales rep can close those, not anybody, but you know. Those are the ones we want. How do you drive more of those? Yeah. So there's two components of it. One, optimize the infrastructure that does the transactional work, right? And so when people are actually looking to buy something for you, how do you convert the most people possible? Google search, conversion rate optimization, lead handoff optimization, having good review sites, having great messaging and positioning and stuff like that. So that's one set. And then the next set is building a lot of awareness that will drive people through into the transactional infrastructure. And thinking about them as two separate components of the engine, I think is really helpful for people because in my mind, I know, okay, I'm in awareness mode. I'm going to measure it this way. I'm going to do it this way. And this is what I'm trying to accomplish. And I'm in transactional mode. I'm trying to get people to convert. I'm trying to move them through. And by separating your mind between those two activities, I think it's been really productive for me. Is that kind of like your... Because I think marketing is simpler when you're clear about what your offers are, right? Mm -hmm. Like one lesson from e-commerce is like two offers, two channels. But it's almost like in B2B, the main offer is the meeting with sales. You're trying to drive everybody to that particular outcome. Mm -hmm. Are you orchestrating all the marketing channels in a way that eventually drive back to that? Because what you're talking about is very like, it's almost like on-site. So you got your website, your funnel, automation, mm -hmm. product marketing, all that stuff can be optimized. That's the transactional right? infrastructure. Yeah. And then on the using all of the other channels in awareness mode, in what I call create demand mode, right? And so these are people that are not looking for what you do, are not in a buying cycle, are in channels where they do not have buying intent. And so using those channels in a way that aligns with their mindset. And so podcast, paid social ads, we use purely on an awareness level and not an awareness level, like top of funnel blogs that don't mean anything. Like we're running product ads so people understand about the features. That's a level of awareness. How would you measure your content with that lens? If you were the CMO of a SaaS company, how would mm -hmm. you measure your content? Yeah, so we, we figured this out quite well. And so inside of any different of the ad platforms, specifically Facebook and LinkedIn, Facebook owns Instagram, so Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, you can build custom conversions inside of the platform that say, Dave, you saw my ad four days ago, and then you came back to my website, even on a different device, and converted on the form. I can't connect that back to you as a human, but I can connect that back in Facebook to say somebody in this audience saw or clicked on the ad and then converted within a specific time window. And so that's what we're looking for because our audiences are clean and our targeting is good and there's no garbage going through a demo form. So we feel good about that conversion. Mm -hmm. And that is how we do it. The only place that's going to be able to connect those two dots is the ad platform because they own the, the data and there's too many privacy policies that they would never give that away. However, a really interesting insight that we've been leaning into over the past six months is that a majority of the conversions are view-through conversions, not click-through conversions, meaning that 
a lot of the people just saw the ad in the feed and then converted within seven days. And so the way that we've been leaning into that after we've measured it is we're trying to tell more of a complete story inside of the feed, knowing that that's human behavior, not necessarily to click anymore, especially inside of social channels. And so... Yeah, I like that. Because you're like on LinkedIn and you might see an ad from Gong, but you might not click it. But it feels like that puts that seed in your head. Like I meant to look at Gong. Exactly. And like, and, and what do you communicate inside of the creative in order to make something more than just someone seeing the logo? Like every Got mistake it. that SaaS companies make inside of LinkedIn is they run some shitty ebook that has no messaging and then the leads don't close. And so what we do instead is we'll take a graphic of a SaaS tool and talk about the new integration and then target the people that use the product that we integrate with. And literally just in the thing, say new integration with Blob or this company plus this company, right? And so just being a little bit more intentional about what we're trying to communicate inside of the actual creative has been a huge insight for us that we've been leaning into. And it continues to be really successful. There's a human behavior going on right now where people don't want to leave the platform. The consumption needs to get done in the platform. What about content, right? Like, so I get it from an advertising Mm -hmm. perspective, right? But, you know, I think at most B2B SaaS companies, paid, paid advertising, social media advertising is going to be 20 to 30% of pipeline, maybe. So like there's so much content. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of B2B SaaS companies fall in this trap of like, we're creating a ton of stuff. <laughs> we're doing webinars, we're doing content, we're doing emails. Like, how do you wrangle all that stuff? The challenge for people is their mindset on what paid advertising is supposed to do to them, right? Or what it's supposed to be used for. For everyone that does it, it's dollars in, dollars out. I spent $1,000, I need 10 leads. What we think about it as is guaranteed delivery of content to people, right? So why am I going to post this blog and then wait for you in nine years to figure out that you need it to go and search and find it. As opposed to, I know that this person wants to see this information. I know that their job title and what company size they work at, I know it fits and I'm going to pay one cent to give you the opportunity to see it. And so it's we think about it as content distribution. So then you can break up content in general from a distribution standpoint into paid and organic. And it sounds like your question was a lot more on organic. So let's go there. Okay, so wait, but that's good. So just because you got me an interesting thought on that. So you're talking about, the goal of advertising that channel is to just basically amplify the brand message. And then in some window, you're hoping that you're doing the right things in all of your other channels to get somebody to eventually come back to your website and book a demo. Organically, not, because the conversion rates are so much higher. But because you've cookied that visitor at some point, you can give credit to that content versus like the whole challenge becomes, they did this one thing, but then they came to this other channel and then like marketing teams get all marketing teams are all misaligned because each team has different goals and there's different channel goals. And so all of a sudden, none of that stuff matters. And that's yep. how you get into the world of like celebrating 500 ebook downloads. But mm-hmm. maybe the better process would have been generate zero leads from that. Don't gate it. Cookie everybody that visits it and engages with the content. And then you know, maybe there's a way to nurture them to actually do something meaningful. Yeah, I'll give you a really good example of one thing that we did with a customer. And so one of our core plays in a top of funnel mindset is what I call a problem awareness blog to cold targeted people that haven't been to our website in the last 180 days. And so the blog will involve taking a reputable study from a source that someone at that company trusts. So, you know, Gartner would be an example for people where we typically don't use Gartner. So if it's like a CFO one, we'll pick someone for that CFO's trust. And then we'll put in there, blah, 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 company just published this study about this. And then inside of it, the blog is going to report because the study said CFOs are struggling with this thing. And oh, by the way, our product solves this thing. And some of those have been our highest performing in terms of cost per demos and overall demo volume. It's dramatically more than like pure advertising on features or things like that, which is just like a really interesting way to look at it because people at the top of the funnel might not care about your product. Right. I think like where I get nervous about people taking this advice to heart is just like you still have to do both. Like I think. If you don't focus on building the top of the funnel, there is no bottom. Like bottom of the funnel is a lot easier (laughs) when you have a top of the funnel. Like Mm -hmm. now it's different. You could also make the case for if you're selling bigger deals that maybe you don't do any inbound marketing, you're doing outbound, but you're still using content in that world. Mm -hmm. I mean, it sort of goes into, and to be direct, like a lot of people listening to this probably should not take my advice directly because there's a lot of nuances to it and it's difficult to execute. 
And so that's just a caveat. I know that people listen to my stuff and then implement certain pieces of the process and have success with it. So if you feel compelled to give it a shot, but the entire system is tough to build. And so when we're going with customers, we get the paid mix running for probably six months to get that ramped up and scaled because it's going to drive the most immediate impact. For some companies, 3x pipeline and their starting point is like 600K in pipeline and move it to 2 million over the course of six months by not even adding any more budget, just by changing how the budget's being used. And once that stuff is ramped up, we get into what I would call like running growth experiments. So looking at new channels, new executions inside of channels, high production video, other things that would be a little bit more challenging to pull off straight away. And so we'll run growth experiments. And meanwhile, we're helping them architect their organic strategy, which is pretty similar to the things that we're doing right now. But what I find is that you really need to break it into chunks for people to one, give the organization confidence in what you're doing. And also to allow people to build processes internally, because as you know, in order to do some of this stuff, and do like operationalize it inside of a company and have a podcast where you're publishing three episodes a week. It's like a lot to start getting moving. And so we kind of like build those windows of time so that people aren't trying to do too many things at once. Yeah. Where are most people wasting budget? There's got to be patterns between what you're cutting. <laughs> Low intent lead gen. That's Low like, intent lead gen. Like what? Third party content syndication. I'm going to gate my oh, ebook my on someone else's site and then they're going to push me $50 leads into my CRM and nobody want and then they're gonna have SDRs follow up. It's not only a waste of marketing dollars, it's a complete waste of SDR time. And so that one for sure. LinkedIn lead gen ads, to be honest, for like ebooks or mid-funnel stuff, like an interesting thing to look at and compare and talk as a caveat here is I get that Salesforce can do it or some large brands that have incredible awareness and product consideration and they can claim attribution on all of their leads. And then eventually some of those people are going to come in and buy stuff, which is why it works for them. But go and try and do that for your $15 million ARR company, and you're going to see very quickly that it doesn't work. And so companies try and replicate strategies from like big enterprises inside of growth stage companies, and it creates a lot of waste and a lot of inefficiencies. And so LinkedIn lead gen ads for mid-funnel stuff, I don't find to be very productive, especially when it's directly followed by a sales cadence. Yeah. It's also harder because there's just like, nothing is new anymore. There's so much competition. Like as an example... I think HubSpot is an example of a company in the B2B space that they basically built their whole funnel through SEO. Search, for sure. And, and you know, I think that's harder. If you're a B2B SaaS company coming in the mix now, that's an SEO cannot channel, be, can't be your primary be strategy. One. It's like, yeah. you got to be like, look, we're building this over time. And so like, I got 20% of my budget that's going to go there because, you know, we're going to rank for stuff over time and next year we'll be happy that we did it. Mm-hmm. But like, you can't go and rely on those channels to just do it and hope you're going to get stuff. And so like, yeah, in the early HubSpot days, 2007, 2008, the best way to generate leads was to write an ebook and call the people who downloaded the ebook. Because if it's remotely related to marketing, you're one of the only freaking companies on the internet that offers that service. And so that mm-hmm. the intent is higher. Today, everybody's writing about this stuff. Everybody's got content about this stuff. And so like, I think that we're seeing this shift back. And the reason that I I like your stuff is like, we're seeing this shift back to like what really matters, which is like proof, testimonials, case studies, examples, ratings and reviews, thought leadership content. The product actually has to work. You have to shift the new, the product team is as influential the best ammo you have as a marketing org is the product team. And mm-hmm. if you can get the product team to be shipping stuff every single month in line with what you're saying to the market, that's how you can create momentum. It's not all these other kind of supplementary channels. But what's harder is all those things, those are harder. They, mm-hmm. take, they take a little bit more time. You have to actually be good at some of these things. And so I think that's where like it's becoming harder It's like, okay, how do you grow some of these organic channels that take time? Because I, I got to hit the number now. Yeah. The key, and you mentioned it with HubSpot and SEO, is that when you're building your company at the beginning, you need to focus on the channels that are the best performing channels at that time, not what it was 10 years ago for a different company. Companies tend to look, especially ones that are invested by VCs, tend to look at models that were successful in the past. And it would be much better in my experience to focus on the channels that are best at the time, which honestly, a lot of people will say are not smart right? Like the amount of people that told me that what I'm doing right now, where we built a $4 million company in two years from with zero funding and $0 is they would told me to build a sales team. 
Like they told me that this definitely wouldn't work for me to post on LinkedIn and create a podcast. And so those are some of the things that I think people need to really think about when you're building a company, especially when you're a marketing leader, is to identify where are the places where, honestly, like I tend to lean in when people tell me my ideas are dumb. Because often, especially like people that if you told me my idea was dumb, Dave, I might think differently. But a lot of people will tell you your ideas are dumb, but they don't know the things that you know. Yeah, 100%. I was listening to Daisy <laughs> this morning and I tweeted out, uh, <laughs> everybody wants to tell you how to do it. And yet most have never done it. Yep. That is, <laughs> so that like, is the truth. <laughs> which is like takes every, every ounce of my body to not say that to 90% of the people that write shit on my LinkedIn Hey, real quick, I just want to plug the DGMG community. You can go and join it right from my website, davegerhardt.com. By the way, if you haven't been there, davegerhardt.com, you'll have all the links. That's how you can go join. But DGMG, the community, it's my members-only B2B marketing community. In the last year, it's grown to over 2,500 members. And it's incredible because it's like having a sounding board outside of your company, which is so valuable as a marketer. So inside of the group, people are getting feedback. They're getting recommendations on tools. They're getting campaign ideas. They're, sometimes people even message me to post anonymous questions about salary and hiring and interviewing. And I'm in the group every single day like sharing my own stuff too. There's 10 to 12 new posts every day. If you join, you can go all the way back as far as the group goes to see all of the content from the last year. And I don't want to oversell it, but I know that you'll see our from it instantly. It's $10 a month to join. You can cancel at any time. So there's really no risk. And you can kind of, you can always DM me and tell me if you thought it was a fraud. So it's $10 a month to join. There's 2,500 members in there. It's become an incredibly valuable part of my workflow as a marketer. And I know it will for you too. So you can go and sign up at davegerhart.com. There's a link you'll see over there to join the DGMG community. All right, let's get back to this episode. Hearing you talk at this level what you have is a core understanding of like how marketing and B2B SaaS and business works. And you're then adapting that to marketing strategies. Like in school, you're way, you're an engineer, you're way smarter than I am. And I can tell, but like what I feel like now, let me tell you in my career now, personally, I feel like I know marketing that things can change. I feel like I know the principles. I know the fundamentals. Like I know the timeless things that like there could Mm -hmm. be a new channel and a new thing tomorrow. I feel like I know how to think about things now and figure them out. I just think like that's the most important thing you can do as a marketing leader is forget about what Dave Gerhardt says, forget about what Chris Walker says, maybe listen to that, mm-hmm. but like just do the own analysis of your own business. What is your position in the market? What is the competitive landscape? What is your ACV? What does mm-hmm. your product team look like? Oh, we're not shipping anything in six months and don't use this strategy of ship, you know, like, okay, content doesn't work. Like you have to take all those things, but then actually go, that's why it's a fun, that's why it's fun to me. It's like, yeah. it's like portfolio management. Like we've talked about this before. You're going to try to figure out these challenges. Okay. I got to grow revenue but here are my guardrails. I can't do it this way. We don't have this budget. That's the marketing challenge. It's problem, it's problem solving. That's what's fun. Yeah, it's problem solving. But Dave, you're a, you're a pure practitioner, which is, I would say, pretty rare at the CMO level, right? Like you're in there doing stuff. Do you think in the future that CMOs are going to need these tactical skills? Like I learned how to run social before I ever did anything on LinkedIn on Facebook 2012, and then trying to sell blankets on Instagram in 2015. And that's where I built the skills that got me successful on LinkedIn, because I understood the dynamics of the platform. And I find that a lot of CMOs aren't in the details enough to know these things. What do you think about that? I don't know. It's hard because like I, I'm weird in this sense of like, I think ultimately for me personally, the thing that I love is marketing and I like the doing. And the reason I left, the reason I left a bigger company to go to a small one, because I got to do more of the doing. We have an amazing team now. And so like, I did more of the doing at Privy in the first probably six months when I took the job to get things going and then like handed that stuff off. Mm -hmm. I don't know because for me, I love creating and it's why I have DGMG. It's why I have other stuff. Like that's what I love. And so I balance that with like, I get to do the marketing strategy. I love leading a team and hiring people and like building the puzzle. But I also like to do the tinkering. I think what's hard is like at every venture-backed B2B SaaS company, you eventually get to that stage where every executive job becomes human capital management, not Mm -hmm. marketing, not sales, not sales. And so like one of the observations that I had about myself was like, I have no aspirations of being a CMO of a 
200 person marketing team and a public company. Cause like, I, that just feels like death for me. That, yeah. Like, and that, that's not a knock that many people that listen to totally. me. Totally. It's, right. it's just knowing what's right. It's just knowing what's right for you. Dude, the most important book I ever read was this is David Cancel at Drift put me on this managing oneself by Peter Drucker. It's like 40 pages. And basically he talks about the worst advice people give you is to work on your weaknesses. His is like double down on your strengths and then like build around them. And so for me, what I do is write, communicate, create stuff. That's a natural skill for me. And so whereas some people, there are things like, I want to manage a team of 200 people. I've been in those conversations where it's literally like, all it is is like, how's Chris doing? Okay, he's doing this. Okay, he's got to go in this role. This person hiring budget, uh, mm-hmm. this problem came up. That's Board means. Yeah. That's not marketing. That's not marketing. And so that's not what I want to do. And so I think the challenge is, at those companies, you know, you have ambitious goals, a lot of money, you can go and hire, you know, any kind of seasoned exec. And I think what a lot of companies find out later on is like, you can have that role, but it always seems to be a trade off. Now, in the flip side, you can hire an amazing CMO, and they know that they're the team manager role. And so they go and hire the amazing, you know, revenue leader, mm-hmm. the amazing brand leader. But I think it's hard. But you know what, you know, this as building a company, I'm learning this as a marketing exec. It really is all about the people. And I used to hate that advice because I'd be like, <clears> I don't know what that means. Truly. I would just try to overanalyze it. Like what it means is exactly what it says. It's all about the people. Like when you have an amazing team of smart people, oh, mm-hmm. everything else is easier. It's like, would you rather play for the Golden State Warriors or, or play for the worst team in the, in the NBA? <laughs> like when you're on a better team, everything is easier. Everything mm-hmm. like... And so I get it now. And uh, Mike Volpe, who is a CMO of HubSpot, is like my coach, my mentor, Mm -hmm. my my closest person in that capacity. He would tell me like when he was CMO at HubSpot, they had a team of 75 people and he would still be the final round interview for every single candidate. And I was Mm -hmm. like, why do you do that? Why do you meet with all these people? And he's like, because this is all there is. Like, this is all that matters is like the people and building the team. And so when Mm -hmm. you think of like the marketing leader job as more GM, I'm trying to put the right people in the right places for the company. That makes everything easier. And mm-hmm. so it's important for people to like take the marketing channel advice from this. But damn, I'm, gotta have, I'm feeling that now. have the team. Yeah, we're at, we're at 22 people. And yes, having people that are truly smart, great attitudes, believe in the mission, work well together, bring their own unique set of skills that contribute to the overall system is like, we're trying to build the all-star team over here, the demand generation all-star team. <laughs> Yeah, I can see it. I mean, I, I think you guys have done a great job. Why don't you go build a SaaS? You should build a SaaS product. It's cooking. I knew it. Or something. Or something read, for- have you read Rand Fiskin's book, Lost and Founder? Uh, no. Okay. I read it on a plane to Mexico in November. And it was fascinating. When I read the book, it was basically all the things that I was doing, but he wrote it in like 2015. And so his theory is build a services organization that generates revenue where you can do R&D and you have profits and then you can build your company without raising money, which is what we're doing. Do you know the ClickFunnels story? I do not. Oh my God. How does nobody know this? Okay, so look up Russell Brunson. This guy is a direct response marketer, like was selling like health supplements and that. Anyway, Mm -hmm. he built his whole software company because he's great at information marketing, content marketing, right? Mm -hmm. And so what he does is like he sells content, courses, books, <laughs> webinars, and all of that stuff is to drive you into his SaaS product, which is, hey, you can use the product to do all these things. Mm-hmm. But instead of treating those channels as free lead gen, they're paid channels. And so yeah. if you want to talk about CAC, now you have somebody who bought a course, bought a four-week program for nine ninety nine, mm-hmm. paid money to be in your funnel, <laughs> and then ultimately upgrades to you know $197 a month recurring SaaS product. Mm-hmm. And the churn on those customers is super low because you want to talk about intent. This is someone who just went through your course on X mm-hmm. <laughs> and now yeah. you can deliver the product. And I think the only reason I mentioned that to you is because I think like if you're as an agency founder, in order to scale your business, you have to have a repeatable framework, right? You're not mm-hmm. going to 20 different clients and doing it 20 different ways. And so nope. like, is there a way you could productize a part of your framework and that could be lead gen for your business would be cool. Yeah, the IP that we have developed is an alternative way to measure marketing that I believe makes way more sense than what is happening right now. We don't need multi-touch attribution and all this other stuff. It's just like, that's what we're working on. We're trying to free marketers from this attribution war and let them do the stuff that's most effective and be able to give credit to a podcast when it deserves it. And so that's what we're doing. 
it's a great mission. Why do you think that happens at every company? Why do we all fight the attribution war? Because MarTech vendors spend a lot of money to teach you that. It's just the way that I see it. But also, like, don't you feel like in some ways I'm jealous of your business? Because when you sell a service like an agency, I think attribution is way easier because it's like you're talking to everybody. I think where people get hard, it's like when you're doing B2B SaaS and you have freemium, you have enterprise, you have all these different channels. It's not complicated. I was in a $30 million company when I figured this stuff out. And it was as simple as when I was running a 100K annual revenue Shopify store or when I'm running my business right now. It's all very simple. Like you're in a $30 million business. You have 20 inbound leads coming per month. That's what's happening. You start spending $20,000 a month on Facebook ads and your sales requests go to 50 a month. So it increased by 250% based on that investment. You pulled that lever. You got that result. There was no other things changing in the system. The problem with a lot of companies is they change too many things in the system at once because they have too large of teams trying to do too many things. Mm. And so that's how we introduce growth experiments. Keep the system stable. You keep the system stable. It should be delivering repeatable stuff. We have a customer that's been getting that $2 million in pipeline for five months in a row by doing the same activities. And now we're trying to figure out how do we get that from 2 to 2.6. And so experiments are going on to get the lift. And then if you get the lift, then you operationalize it. So you start getting 2.6 every month, and then you go figure out the next thing. And so what you just broke down your machine. Okay, for people listening, <laughs> what Chris just broke down, I think is the most important lesson you could take. Most people listening are probably going to be less than 30 million ARR, just by gut feeling. Mm-hmm. The marketing is a feedback game. The faster you can move and get feedback, the faster you'll succeed. But a lot of people get stuck on there. So like, Chris, I hear you. I got to get all the attribution set. We haven't launched our paid campaign, Chris, because we don't have conversion tracking set up right. What Chris just said is, imagine this. They weren't doing something before. They started doing something. And then after that, <laughs> something happened. Think you got more of it. It can be that freaking simple, especially if you're in the early stages of a startup. Like that's all you need. That's all you need is like, it's a data point to say like, I think this is working. Let's go do more of it. But now I understand how your background comes into this place. Like as an engineer, your mind, your bias is to actually run the scientific method on how you think about experiments, right? It's like, yeah. I did one of those like food allergy tests recently. And it's like the only solution is elimination diet. That's the same way to think about marketing. It's like, how many variables do you have? In most cases, most companies, you're not going to you're going to have maybe your blog and some ads. It's not that crazy. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing we do with our company. LinkedIn posts had a couple of people send me a message, say, hey, we want to work with you. And then added video and said, hey, I loved your video. Love to do that. Now we have both. And then we started the podcast. Hey, I love your podcast. Would love to talk about you and just watch those things happen in the pipeline grow. And so if we had signals where people were like, your podcast sucks, I don't want to listen to it, we would have a choice. We would either be able to make a better podcast or stop doing it. Right. But the signals are really easy. And that's why I look at it in the form of correlation, recognizing that measurement is flawed. The tools that companies use to make decisions are inherently flawed and they give credit more to the things that can be measured naturally. And so therefore, you'll never see a podcast show up. And that's why you don't see a lot of companies running a podcast. You'll never see LinkedIn organic show up unless you do the wrong things with UTMs that nobody clicks on in order to facilitate that, which is why you don't see a lot of companies leaning to that. And they get biased to lower funnel direct response channels or things that are easily measured on the desktop computer. And so people have not recognized that nobody's going to be able to see this in the podcast, but people consume information on their mobile phone. And it's very difficult unless you convert someone right there to ever connect the dots between that mobile phone listen of a podcast or the view of a LinkedIn post or a video or the comment thread that happened about your product in a different post. You'll never see those things. So you're get, you like, my position on this is that the most valuable touch points are not measurable and companies give credit to the touch points that are not valuable and give them credit and start doing more of those things. I really hope people think about that because I think it drives a lot of the wrong decisions. It also drives your marketing strategy because of how the tools are set up to measure. You do your marketing strategy that fits the measurement of the tool as opposed to build your marketing strategy that works and then figure out the best way to measure it. Yeah, it's almost like you should throw out all the attribution. Who knows if this could apply, but like in DGMG, I added one question after somebody becomes a member. I asked them, how'd you hear about this? And it's amazing. I hear word of mouth. I hear LinkedIn. I hear 90% of people say LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. I hear a couple of weeks ago, I, w- I did somebody else's podcast. And after that, like four people said that on that podcast. It's like, why can't you just do that for B2B SaaS? Like if someone's booking a demo, 
and they booked a meeting, just ask them. A sales rep could do it on the call. You could mm-hmm. listen to Gong and just start scraping where. But like to your point about the podcast, we did that early days of Drift. So many customers, we didn't have it in a spreadsheet. It wasn't tracked in a chart, but it was like, because we had this podcast, more people are telling us that they're becoming customers. And when we asked them why, they said, oh, I heard about you first on this podcast. Mm-hmm. And that's all we needed to know that like, yeah, we're going to carve out seven grand in the budget every month to do production for this show and mm-hmm. it's going to be worth it. And we're not going to like measure that against a cohort of people who came in via that channel because we don't know. But overall, we're growing organic traffic, direct traffic, engagement mm-hmm. on all these other channels. You know, that's- So why don't you think that people take that mindset? I interact with hundreds of marketing leaders at director level or all the way to CMO every month, whether they're customers or not customers of mine doesn't matter. And I would say less than 5% that are not our customers adopt that type of methodology. So part of it is like, I've now done it firsthand and I've seen it. And so like, mm-hmm. I don't need to get in an argument about whether it works or not. I can, sh- <laughs> I can show you. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of it is like, they haven't done it and they haven't felt that. Yeah. And even if they're willing to do that, the way that I would push you to do it is to not think about it from a meetings, not think about totally. it. Totally. I would say, look, here would be the best way to do it. Chris, like if I came in, I was like coaching you, right? Let's say you sucked at content marketing. I'd be like, look, keep doing what you're doing. We're going to now add this thing on top of it. And I want you to not think about it for six months. We're just going to do it. It's going to go out every Wednesday. It's going to be like mm-hmm. this. We're not going to think about it. We're going to create good content, but we're not going to think about it from a revenue perspective, mm-hmm. right? And you're going to take off your CMO hat and you're going to put on the, I'm the best friend with the person that I'm trying to get to. Yeah. And it's a, and, mi- it's a part it's, of partially a mindset game. Now, look, it's different if I said, hey, Chris, we're going to shut down all of marketing. We're going to go all in on the podcast and the podcast has to generate 30 demos for us. <laughs> I would take a different strategy that way, right? Mm-hmm. That'd be different. But like if you're doing it to build a, the, the power of the brand, now what's going to happen is I'm going to tell you, wait for six months. But reality, what's going to happen is after five episodes, after three episodes, you're getting more LinkedIn messages than you ever got before. Mm-hmm. You're getting more inbound meetings than you ever got before. Hey, I really loved your interview with so-and-so. Okay, huh. Now you have gut feeling. I have been in executive meetings where in addition to the day, one thing that I always do is I always, in addition to data, I always show the qualitative stuff too. Screenshots. Uh, so, so I show screenshots of customer reviews, of messages, of tweets. I'll show that stuff mm-hmm. and be like, early days of Drift. Here's a screenshot of Andy Raskin saying that we have the best sales deck he's seen in years. Huh. Should we continue to put content out? Like, yeah, like to show those screenshots, those are equally as valuable. Now, you can't be in those meetings missing the number over and over and over and over again and doing the like, hey, but look are people saying, because that, that's a different piece of it. Yeah. As far as justifying how why you do those things, it's it's as much of a feeling as it is a, a data thing. Mm-hmm. And do you think sort of leads me back to my, a question I asked you a little while ago? Do you think because a lot of marketing leaders are not in the details, they are, don't get the qualitative feel, and therefore don't have the yeah, sense that you and I do about it? Maybe because I think I think in some ways, in order to feel that, you have to be like plugged in to social media. Or you got to be in there some channel, and so like I think. At Drift, for example, like David and I were super, like we would talk about Twitter and we were talking about social media a lot. And I think a lot of the content success was because we were plugged into social media and you have a taste for what's going on and what's Mm -hmm. happening. And so when you're in those channels, you know who Andy Raskin is and you know that it's influential that he said that. Or you saw a customer from Okta write a post on LinkedIn and tag you. It's like, what customer <laughs> is going to tag the marketing person and <laughs> after they just bought their SaaS product? And like, you know, and so I would be seeing those things. But if you're not in the mix and, and you're not where those conversations are happening, social mm-hmm. media, you know, sales calls, then yes, you would 100% miss it. If you just ran the business by spreadsheets, which, you know, there's a strength and weakness of of mine, admittedly, but I think what I make up for is on the knowing what's going on piece is like, Mm -hmm. you know, that's where I feel really, really strong about like, look, that's all it's about. It's like, where are the conversations that your customer had? I've kind of only been in B2B SaaS. And so that's heavily Mm -hmm. on Twitter and LinkedIn. You can get really up to speed on an industry. Mm -hmm. Company starts to feel like you're part of that conversation every day. You don't have to be in those meetings with showing the spreadsheet to the CFO. Yeah. And I, I don't want people to make excuses about, oh, we sell to CIOs. So I'm not going to be able to communicate with them. If you're the CMO, it's your job to understand their world. 
If you're a marketer at that company that goes after those people, it's your job to understand their world. It's your job to make that for them to feel like you're a peer, not a vendor, for you to feel like that you're their friend. And I did that. I've done that in multiple different buyer segments. The one that I think is most interesting is respiratory therapists, emergency medicine physicians, ICU intensivists, like people that have crazy educations and save people's lives. And I was able to get people that were really good on the podcast to sit with drinks after a round table at a conference. Like, and those are the things that are important because you really get to understand people like the ability to execute marketing. Once you've done those things is ridiculously more effective. Also, like I hear that people say that a lot, my customer is not, but like, I don't believe that. I think everybody is on social media and online today. And, and there is a community for every everything niche that you could think of, right? Mm-hmm. Nurses in Burlington, Vermont, I'm sure, is a Facebook group that has, mm-hmm. you know, 610 members. I don't know. I'm making that yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. That's all marketing is, is understanding what the people you're trying to sell to. What are they doing? What are they talking about? What are they thinking about? It's 2021. All that stuff is happening online today. On the internet. In some form or another. And so your job as CMO is then, yeah, maybe it doesn't mean in your industry you're going to be on Twitter like you and me are. But you got to think about, okay, well then, oh, well, these four blogs influence those people. These two people, these are the two influential events. Okay, now you can start to build the shell of like your brand strategy, which is like Mm -hmm. these events matter, these people matter, these groups matter. Now we're going to think about how we get in front of them. Okay, we got to get our CEO to speak. In order to get our CEO to speak, we have to have something interesting. In order to have Mm -hmm. something interesting, we need to ship something innovative from the product side. Like Mm -hmm. that's where it starts is like laying those things out. Forget about the fact that we're talking about Twitter. Yeah, love that. Okay, I guess we got to go. I said I was going <laughs> to. I said I was going to get outside in a little bit. Yeah, please do, um, man. Okay, we'll do this more. A lot of people have asked for you, and Chris, I appreciate it. If you're not following Chris on LinkedIn, go to LinkedIn. You'll see his videos. You'll see his content. Leave and us with some wisdom. I want you to say something before you. Just everyone, get ready because we're going to do another live event coming up soon. We'll get you the dates at one point. People love that thing, and I'm really looking forward to doing that on a recurring basis with you, Dave. And so. I think that's where we're in. Look forward to the next one. Okay, let's do it. We'll do more stuff together. This is our public promise. Chris. Yeah, yeah. Now they can hold us accountable. Yeah, Chris, you're great. I appreciate you. I'm going to hang up and let you go. Cool, man. Have a great weekend. Good to see you, Dave. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of the DGMG Podcast. If you learned anything new from this episode or got one valuable piece of marketing knowledge, it'd make my day to leave a review. I like to look at them. I like to see what people are thinking and hear about. Or if you didn't like it, leave me some feedback. Otherwise, I will talk to you on the next episode. See ya.